John chapter 12, starting from verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. If anyone, sorry, anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, This voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, You are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the, in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light, so that you may become children of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Thank you, Ant. Do keep that open. Let me pray as we start. Uh, Heavenly Father, we too would like to see Jesus, to see him lifted up and glorified. You have spoken from heaven for our benefit. May we hear you clearly that we may believe in the light and walk in the light. Amen. So this week I found myself uh, reminiscing about uh, past summers, particularly uh, the summer of 2012 and the glorious London Olympics. I was very lucky. I got tickets uh, with a friend to go down and watch uh, the, the rowing finals uh, down at Eton Dorney. Uh, it was the finals for the, for the Coxless Fours, and Great Britain romped home to victory in ferocious crosswinds. It was a splendid bit of rowing. Uh, and obviously, I was jumping up and down on the bank like a maniac, shouting uh, for all I was worth, partly because it was just the most excellent bit of rowing, uh, but also because it was Great Britain, and it was simply another gold on the tally board. Uh, 
But I wasn't just a disinterested, if slightly patriotic, spectator. I am also a rower, albeit for a very small college club rather than Great Britain. No way I could ever row at that level. But when I got home, I thought, you know what? I'm going to take training more seriously. So I wrote out a timetable for the rest of the summer, and the next day I was duly on my rowing machine, training just that little bit harder. My appreciation of Great Britain's rowing had provoked feelings of immense admiration and applause, but it had also inspired me. It had made me want to row better, uh, however much I would still fall short of Olympic standards. And this is quite a good picture of just how we respond to things that are good, how we make much of what is excellent. Not just admiration, but also inspiration. Now, it may not be sport. Um, it might be a particularly excellent piece of music that makes you think, gosh, I really wish I knew how to play the clarinet. Uh, it might be an exquisitely cooked meal in a restaurant that you have around at friends that think, makes you think, hmm, I'm going to go back to the recipe book. Books. I'd like to cook just like that. This is how we make much of what is good, not just applauding it, but by imitating it, copying it. This is worth bearing in mind as we come to this passage in John's Gospel, this account of Jesus' life written by his friend John. We've come to a turning point in John's account. So up till this point in his Gospel, we've heard this phrase again and again, the hour is coming, the hour is coming, and yet the hour is not yet. It hasn't arrived. It's coming, it's not yet. Until verse 23 of our passage this morning, Jesus says, the hour has come. The hour for what? Well, the hour has come for Christ himself, the Son of Man, to be glorified. And there follows this intriguing series of exchanges between Jesus, his disciples, the crowds. Even God gets involved speaking from heaven. And through it all, there's this idea of glorification, being lifted up, made much of. So the question that threads through it all is this. How is God to be glorified in Christ? How is God to be glorified in Christ it's a good question for us this morning. How and why should we make much of Christ? It's an excellent question if we would call ourselves Christians. How do we make much of the one after whom we are named? But if you're here this morning and you're just looking into Christian matters, it's also a good question to explore. Why is this Jesus worth making so much about? There's two answers running through the passage. We're going to be focusing mainly on the first half, but two points that are on the back of the service order, if that's a help. The first point is that we glorify Christ because of what he has done. The second is that we glorify Christ by what we now do. So point one, we glorify Christ for what he has done. Now, it all starts with these Greeks who pop up in verse 20. So what's so special about these Greeks? Is Jesus particularly fond of Greek architecture or, or Lammasaka? Does he, does he fancy a holiday in the Aegean? Well, no. Greeks are referring to something a little bit broader than that. See, at this time, most of the Mediterranean, in fact, most of the Middle East, spoke Greek. 
um, the Jews, Jesus and the people in Jerusalem, spoke a different language. So Greek just came to mean someone from the wider region, but most importantly, someone who wasn't a Jew. So up until this point in John's gospel, Jesus has mainly been focusing on the Jewish people, on Israel. After all, he's God's own son, so it makes sense for him to come to God's own people. The Greeks are not part of God's own people. They are on the outside. In fact, along with the rest of humanity, they've ignored God. They have made little of him. They have not given him the glory that is due to him. And yet, verse 23, they're the trigger. They're the trigger for Jesus to say, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So what's going on there? Well, Jesus is glorified by coming for those who have no, no claim on God. That means everyone who has ignored God and made little of him. Everyone who, left to their own devices, would in fact have nothing to do with God. That means these Greeks and all who they represent. Incidentally, it also means the leaders of Israel, supposedly God's own people, who are busy at this very moment plotting to kill Jesus. But we'll leave them aside for today. It means these Greeks. And it also means us, whether we are of Jewish birth or not. Whether we think of ourselves as religious or not. All of us, by nature, are outside God's people. And yet, all of us are the trigger For Jesus to say, now is the time for me to be glorified. So what is this hour? And how does it make much of Jesus? Well, Jesus starts to expand on it in verse 24. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. So you need to remember, Jesus grew up with farmers, so he loves a good farming illustration. So he says to his disciples, wheat, you you, you know wheat, you know the only way you get more wheat is to start with a single grain. You know, that's just common sense. Needs to separate off from the main, what's it called, the main ear of corn, fall to the ground and get itself buried. Simples. You can imagine the disciples scratching their heads going, what on earth is he talking about? It's one of those things that becomes much clearer after the events that would follow. Jesus' death and resurrection. So the imagery needs a bit of unpacking. First question, what is this seed that falls and dies? What's that representing? Well, it's Christ. How has he fallen? Well, on the one hand, he is the word of God. God's own son eternally, blissfully, one with the Father and the Spirit. Quick plug for the March Catechism question. And actually we see this again and again in John's Gospel. Jesus doing works of immense power that show his unity with the Father and the Spirit. And yet, this Son has taken on human flesh. He's become a poverty-stricken carpenter. He's taken on human limits, human needs, even human fears. 
He has fallen from heaven, just like, well, just like a grain falling off an ear of corn and plummeting to the ground. But it's going to get worse. He's already been rejected by his own people. Soon he'll be handed over to the Romans and crucified. He will die and then be buried in the ground, just like a grain of wheat. Now that does not sound like glorification. It does not sound like much is being made of Christ. If anything, he seems to have chosen to abandon the glory that is due to him. And it's what the difference between Christ and a seed is the seed doesn't have any choice, whereas Christ has chosen to do this. And he's chosen to do it because this is actually how he will be glorified. Because unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. So first the seed dies, but then deep in the earth, it germinates, starts to grow, and pushes its stalk up above the ground. Having suffered, died, and been buried, Jesus will rise again, conquering death. But you don't get just one seed back. Oh, no, no. A stalk of wheat will produce many more seeds, a whole ear of corn. So the second question, what are these seeds that are produced? Well, if Christ is the first seed, it it follows that these other seeds are Christians. The ear of wheat is the church. Makes sense. It's the new community that will grow from Jesus' death and resurrection. Neither Jewish nor Gentile, but Christian. That's why these Greeks are so important. They're the first buds of this new community. Actually, that's what we're all doing here this morning. We are part of a field of grain that is the harvest of Christ's glory around the world and throughout history. Now, Jesus puts this more bluntly in verses 31 and 32, a bit further down. There he says, Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. The prince of this world, death, is driven out. And we, who have made so little of God, are drawn in, welcomed over the threshold into his arms. All through Jesus, literally being lifted up from the earth on a cross. Same idea, different words. But how is this really glorifying to Christ? Well, going back to our seeds, it's worth remembering seeds can't produce themselves. They need that first seed to die in order for them to live. They need that first seed to poke its head through the soil for them to then be able to grow. They don't contribute anything, but they get all the benefit All the benefit from the stalk and the roots. And the same can be said of us and Christ. What do we bring to Christ? Well, like these Greeks, we can bring nothing except how little we have made of God. Our sin and our rebellion. 
And what does Christ give us in return? Well, like those seeds, he gives us life. Not just life now, but into eternity. The promise that where he is, resurrected and ascended, one day we will be also, if we follow him. How does Christ give us this? By his humiliation, his death, and his burial, freely chosen on our behalf, so that we might enjoy the benefits. That is why Christ is glorified, because he did for us what we could never have done for ourselves. You can be part of the stalk, he says. My death can become your death. My resurrection, your resurrection. No wonder this is glorifying to Christ. This is how we make much of him, by praising him for what he has done. And just a good question. How good are we at this? I was reminded as I was preparing this, so often when I pray, I start with what I would like Christ to do rather than what he has already done. I so often come with requests rather than praise. It's a good litmus test, isn't it? How much do we really make of Christ and all he has done? Similarly, are we, are we grieved by the rebellion that made this necessary? And are we amazed by the mercy we have been shown? Or do we need to spend more time digging into our Bibles, mulling over what it says of this Christ who chose to do this for us so that he could draw us into his arms? Christ is glorified when we make much of what he has done for us, what we could never have done for ourselves. But there is more. And this brings us on to our second point, to glorify Christ by what we now do. So if we go back to verses 23, 24, there's a, there's a bit more going on. So Jesus is clearly talking about himself. He, he's the one who's fallen to the ground, will die, and then produce many seeds. But it's clear he's not only talking about himself. He, he's looking forward to what these seeds will do. And this leads him seamlessly into verses 25 and 26. Anyone, not just me, anyone who loves their life will lose it, Jesus says, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. So if the seeds are Christians, the church, then what should those seeds look like? If I may be allowed to completely mix up my metaphors, they can't simply sit on the sidelines applauding, as if Jesus was simply a very fast Olympic boat. No, this is a call to action. More than that, a call to imitate. Jesus' humiliation, death, and eventually resurrection are a pattern for our own lives. He gives us this dramatic promise, doesn't he? Anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. That's exactly what Jesus is about to do. But what does he mean for us to hate our lives? After all, none of us, I hope, are going to get crucified. Well, it's a question of priorities. 
we naturally desire what seems good to us. Possessions, relationships, habits, attitudes. Often perfectly good things. And it's easy to think that those things are what makes up our lives. The risk is that we prioritize such things over what is truly good and valuable and really worth making much of, which is to know Christ and be with him forever. We get our priorities back to front. We love ourselves more than God. We do what we want to do ahead of what God wants us to do. Jesus, by contrast, always puts what God wants ahead of what he wants. Now, it's tempting to think, especially in John's gospel, that well, it's all very well Jesus saying that, but he's not really like us. You know, he works miracles left, right, and center. He speaks of lofty, heavenly matters as if he's discussing the price of milk. It's easy to think, well, it's all very well for Jesus to say, go and hate your life. But he's different. Wonderfully, look at verse 27. Having told us what to do, Jesus then shows us how to do it. He considers the path he is going to take and on which we in some ways will follow. But as he considers it, he says this, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, no, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. This verse shows that Jesus is as human as you or I, without sin, perfectly obedient, but fully, fully human. He, he's not playing dress-up at being human, like when we're kids we pretend to be firemen. We said earlier he took on human flesh with all of its limitations. That includes a human mind, human feelings, and a human will. As God... The sun is outside time. He knows absolutely everything and he is supremely powerful. That's going to make his decision making a bit different from ours. But as a human being, what has Jesus got to think and will and make decisions with? Well, like us, he's got a bunch of nerve cells in his skull. He has to process information, weigh up the possibilities. He has to wrestle with decisions just like us. And yet without sin, perfectly regulated by obedience to God. We face all kinds of decisions in following Christ. There's an important decision right in front of Christ in this verse. Will he keep going to the cross? What will his priorities be? How will he make the right decision? And in this verse, Jesus shows us four steps. The first is a complaint. My soul is troubled. You know, familiar feeling, the, the knot in the pit of your stomach, the, the moment when your body floods with adrenaline. You know, for Jesus, this is a perfectly rational response to the suffering and horror that is lying ahead of him. And in the same way, we can rationally be troubled when we are faced by what is not good. Of course, we can very often get troubled by what really shouldn't trouble us. But there's still a parallel. We are troubled by what is not good. But what does Jesus do with that trouble? 
Well, step two, he stops himself and thinks, what shall I say? And then he immediately turns to his heavenly father. Father, save me from this hour. He immediately seeks refuge in God. That should always be the first response to trouble. That is Christ's first response. Step three, though, we have a problem. Father, save me from this hour. No, no, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. So Jesus now wrestles, albeit briefly, with what he wants and what God wants. Because it's entirely possible to want good things that conflict with God's plans. Jesus wants to stay alive, a perfectly reasonable and good desire. And yet he knew that he had come to this hour to die, to be the seed that falls, dies, and is buried, to produce many more seeds. He knows that he's come to this hour to save us who could not save ourselves. That is God's plan. We can so easily excuse ourselves from doing what God wants because it conflicts with other goods or what we judge to be good. Step four, where does Christ land? Father, glorify your name. Many things are good, but what is the highest good? For God to be glorified in Christ. Jesus has shown us how to think and feel in a way which is ordered to what God wants, not what we want. How do we then put Christ before other things? How does Christ shape our priorities? There's lots of ways we can think about this, but I want to pick out just one specific example. It's the end of a busy term. We're tired. It's British summertime. Tensions can often run high. Let's imagine we've fallen out with someone. Someone has injured us in some way, a friend, co-worker, spouse, relative, whatever, and we are reasonably troubled by the injury we seem to have received. What seems good in that moment? Well, it might be to, to push back, to give them tit for tat. After all, that's fair. Can't have people getting away with things like that. Or it might seem good to withdraw. After all, good to look after myself. All the bloggers say that's what I should do. But such responses would be sinful, and they are not what Jesus does. Maybe we have a sense that those things are wrong. So maybe we do follow Jesus's step two, and we turn to God We seek refuge in him. I wonder what those prayers might look like for you. Lord, could this person just not get my back up quite so much today? Lord, can you please help me get through the next meeting without me wanting to strangle them? It's a good start. It's turning to God. But if you think about it, it's still about what we want. We don't want to have to go through the trouble. But Jesus has a step three what God wants. What would the higher good be that would make much of Christ, his commands, his glory? Well, first off, it would be to forgive them. It's definitely what Jesus commands. 
Or perhaps there's even something higher. To examine our own conscience. Did we in fact provoke them? Have we been too harsh on them? Is my perspective all wrong? After all, Jesus calls us sinners. He says that we will get things wrong. Is he right? Is it worth asking the question? And maybe we in fact need to ask for this other person's forgiveness for the way that we have behaved. Jesus definitely commands that. But of course that will hurt. It will be humiliating, painful. That doesn't seem good at all. And yet it will fulfill step four that Jesus took. It will put God's glory in Christ ahead of our own. We'll say for Christ, it is worth it. And it is worth it to make us more like Christ. To truly glorify Christ, as he says, we must follow him in his footsteps, the steps that he has taken. But the only motivation for this has to be what Christ himself has done for us. We can't just extract these things like they're a self-help manual. The pattern has to be set by what Christ has done and continues to do in loving us and saving us. You can't have one without the other. If we truly value what Christ has done, we will want to imitate him. We will want to follow. We will want to put his glory first. But if we want to imitate him, we must value and understand precisely that which is already done. You can't have the one without the other. Jesus puts it another way in verse 36. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. See, believe, praise, but then become, do, follow, serve. As I watched Britain's Coxless Four yomp home to victory in 2012, I was under no illusions about my own ability. If by some freak accident I'd suddenly found myself in the British boat on the start line, well, GB would have come at a very distant last. In fact, they may even have been disqualified because you're not allowed to, if you cross the finish line with one of your rowers having fallen out of the boat, you're disqualified. They were doing something I could not do and, and could never do. That, that's one reason they were so worth applauding and making much of. And yet, with my imaginary little Union Jack singing God Save the Queen, I was part of their victory, bound up in it. It's a silly illustration, because how much more is Christ worth applauding and praising and celebrating for doing that which we could never, ever have done? But as I went home, I wanted to row better to train harder, to be just that little bit more like an Olympic athlete than I was otherwise. When we truly know what Christ has done for us, we will want to be more like him. The more we know him, the more we will put his glory ahead of our good. And in that, with his help, by his grace, by the power of his spirit, we will find life with him forever.
and invite the music group back up. Let me pray as we close. Lord Jesus, the path which you took is one which we could never have taken ourselves. It was a path that means that you are the only name in heaven by which we can be saved. May we rightly praise you for that. But Lord, you call us to follow. You call us to imitate. You call us to serve you. And Lord, this is hard. This is, fills us with trouble. So Lord, fill us with your spirit that we may be made more like you in all that we do, and putting your glory first. Amen.